0: Hi, I'm Benjamin Light.
1: And I'm Marcus Sparks.
0: And welcome to a special episode of Bros Watch PLL 2. We've got a special guest with us today. It's the onset dresser for Pretty Little Liars, Mike Malone.
2: Hello, gentlemen. How are you? doing well doing great
1: nice to talk to you um i love your imdb like your credits are amazing so it's uh, it's a treat for us to talk to um,
2: yeah it's uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting imdb page i have to say <laughs> myself
1: <laughs> i mean if, if i could just throw out a, a few highlights obviously twin peaks killing zoe uh karina karina which i saw in the theater when it came out uh, quite a few Soderbergh movies. Uh, I'm a big Soderbergh fan. Traffic, which Jay Moore uh, is a show that I think uh, Benji and I both liked when it was on. Um, Medium, which you know we talked about in the podcast before. Stitchers, PLL, the New Twin Peaks. Also, Chud 2. Um, oh, yeah. Chud 2. <laughs> and then um, you've, you've been in some of these projects, too. You've had cameos or roles, um, which fascinates me. I mean, technically, you helped George Clooney rob a bank. You've Correct. had your you've had your own you know uh, Scientology like religion in a Soderbergh movie. Correct. Yeah. It's it's pretty impressive.
2: <laughs> well, you know, basically how all, all that happened was being the on set dresser. I'm on set with all the actors and the directors and the crew while we're actually shooting, and uh, just struck up a relationship with uh, Lynch and Soderbergh and. All those guys. And I'm generally regarded as the crew class clown. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they thought I was funny. So they thrown me a bone and give me a little, you know, part here and there.
0: Nice. Okay. I think you buried the lead, marker. He's also in uh, Tremors, set dresser. That's classic.
2: It's true. Yes. That's that was, uh, yeah, that was my first big movie. And it was non-union. <laughs> like, uh, actually, the original Twin Peaks was non-union. Hmm. And got on it, and we were up in Lone Pine, California, which is – do you know about Lone Pine? No. It's just down the mountain. Yeah, just down the mountain from – what's the highest point in the 48 contiguous states? Uh, Mount Whitney. Whitney, yeah. It's just down the mountain from Mount Whitney. And we built that town out in the middle of the desert, and we'd get up before dawn, go out there, and shoot all day with the great Ron Underwood, who – had never directed before everybody to a man thought this is going to be a disaster, but we all go to the cast and crew screening of tremors and it was like, Oh my God, this is like one of the best movies I've ever seen. (laughs) And it's just had this uh, amazing life of its own. Um, I worked a little bit on, uh, I think on tremors too, but uh, my wife uh, worked on castle the TV show and Ron Underwood directed an episode of that a few years ago. And I happened to work a few days on it and got back in touch with him, but he's a really good guy. And yeah, it's amazing how, you know, when people hear you work on tremors, how excited they get. (laughs) I mean, great, great cast, great crew. We had a blast and, you know, but it was one of those days where you have to shower at the end of a day of work as opposed to before the day of work, because you are just covered in desert Every square inch of you, inside and out, was covered with dirt and dust. It was uh, it was a fun experience.
0: Nice. Okay. Well, I guess one one question we should get to right off the bat, because our listeners are probably curious, and we're curious as well. What exactly does an on-set dresser do?
2: Okay, well, you've got on every show what's called the art department, and they, it's headed by the production designer, and he's the guy who designs – the sets, uh, how the sets look, you know, what, basically what they're going to be. And within that department, you've got an art director who sort of helped build the sets. You've got a set decorator who decides what's going to be on the sets, what furniture, draperies, everything, all the little stuff that's going to be on a set. You've got a lead man who is in charge of a group of set dressers, Uh, who go out and get the things that are going to be on set and they bring it back and put it on the set. Now I am a set dresser, but I am the only person in the art department who is with the shooting crew. Mm -hmm. I show up with the shooting crew and I have to keep the set looking the same, no matter which angle we look at, because Mm -hmm. if we want to put, if we're in Spencer's great room and we want to put the camera where the island is we got to get rid of the island so we have to put it somewhere where it's not on camera but somewhere where it's out of the way for lighting and camera and everybody else and then when we turn around and see it again I have to put it back where it goes or you know where it looks good for the camera it may not be exactly where it goes but you know I'm just sort of a guy who moves everything around and keeps it looking the same for an entire scene or You know, I mean, we spent entire days in Spencer's great room, so Mm -hmm. Uh, basically continuity for the set. But everybody else in the art department, it's either taking down the set we've already shot on or prepping a new set that we're going to shoot on. It's all got to be ready once we get there. And I'm just the guy who stays with the shooting crew and sort of in charge of maintenance and continuity.
1: So like the, the bridge between the art department and like what actually gets captured in the camera.
2: Yeah, basically, I'm the last line of defense before (laughs) when the camera rolls, you know, I'm the only one there. So how did you get started doing that? Well, getting back to Chud 2, let's see. I had been working, trying to get into the financing side of the film business, and I was working for an entertainment lawyer, and then things didn't work out there. So I thought, I'm going to get into production. Called a friend of mine who was a fellow film school grad. He was working on this movie. I went in and interviewed, that was Chud 2, and they said, okay, we want you to work with the girl who's the on dresser. She needs some help, so go help her. And then after that, she hired me on this movie, China O'Brien 1 and 2, <laughs> which uh, we got to spend a summer in Park City making some ungodly low amount of money. And um, then it just sort of, you know, it just sort of snowballs from there. It's like, oh. Somebody else there's another show starting up. Well you want to work on it? Yeah, 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 sure. I'll work on it. And then it's just, you know, twenty sixteen and here I am in Burbank.
0: Nice. <laughs> now one question about the set dressers. Is uh like is there a props department? Is that a thing or is that just something handled by the art department?
2: Uh well props is technically sort of uh on their own, <laughs> but they are under the umbrella of the art department. But basically props are anything an actor is picking up or holding or anything else like purses or kind of the realm of both wardrobe and props. Mm, okay. Yeah. All the phones or props, glasses. I'm trying to think of uh, computers, you know, anything, all food, uh, anything they pick up, basically anything an actor touches mm-hmm. and picks up becomes a prop. And yes, they are part of the art department and they work closely with me. They helped me out a lot. Uh, Martin Carrasco Leon and, Adam Garcia are our on-set prop guys, and Chris Vale is our prop master. He's not on set. He's usually prepping and getting stuff ready for the next day. But, um, yeah, props is a very integral part of the whole art department experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And so that would be something the actor's touching as opposed to, say, like a lamp in the background that's on set, but right. not they're not going to be messing with it. It's just there. Yeah.
2: Exactly. I'm, I'm the lamp in the background props is, you know, the drink Spencer has in her hand or whatever. Yeah.
0: Big glass of wine. She's drinking,
2: you know what I mean? Uh, the, the laptop. Yeah. The laptop or the pills she's taking <laughs> or whatever, you know,
1: it, it fascinates me that an item that could have been in the background of a scene for, for episodes and episode episodes, like someone writes in the actor picks this up. And it's like it changes departments. <laughs> this, well, this single thing is now possessed by another group.
2: Yeah, if it's um, yeah, if it's in the script, as somebody has to pick it up, it technically becomes a prop. But yeah, it could have been something that could have been on that set for months and months without ever being picked up.
0: Where does uh, Pictunia figure in? Because a lot of times Pictunia is kind of just in the background, not really being interacted with.
2: Uh, that's the little hand puppet that Lucy has, right? Yeah. Uh, that is, I concern myself sometimes with the placement of it, but it is brought in specifically by the prop department and they take care of it. So I don't worry about it that much because props is usually on that, but you know, we'll work together like, you know, back in her old room, she had that bed with all those pillows on it. And, uh, you know, we would have to place the pig somewhere in there to where it would be seen if it was important in the shot. Mm -hmm. So it became a you know an exercise in pillow management.
0: I like to imagine <laughs> that sometimes Pictunia moved on its own. You just had to put it back.
2: I wouldn't doubt it for a
1: second. <laughs> so, what is a, a typical day on on the set of Pillow for you?
2: You know, it's uh, we usually work. I mean, most there's a lot of shows where you can work really long hours, like twelve plus hours, and it can get really hellacious, but. Pretty Little Liars to me has always been a pretty laid back show. We don't work long hours. Everybody knows, you know, it's, it's, we've got a rhythm going. Mm -hmm. We know kind of what we're doing and we've got a pretty regular crew of directors who come in and, you know, what we're doing isn't that hard. It's just, you know, we try to make it as creative as possible and uh, shoot scenes and then we're usually home we, we don't do that many 12 hour days. I mean, every now and then, sure, we do on bigger episodes. We'll have longer days. But, um, you know, there's a lot of times where we're home after 10 or 11 hours. And that's in, in the big context of the film business, that's really nice because, you know, you've, there's a lot of shows I know that'll regularly work 13, 14 hour days and it just rags you out by the end of the week. Mm mm-hmm.
0: hmm. I imagine it also makes a big difference, too, that it's pretty much all on the lot there at Warner Brothers, right?
2: Yeah, we uh, we never leave the lot, which is great. And, uh, you know, we go on location. We go to the back lot. Uh, you guys, I know, have seen the back lot, right?
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: And uh, the jungle, you know, is for all the, you know, woodsy chase scenes and the dealer in his house and all that stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's great because yeah you just and the thing is, I live like a mile from Warner Brothers, so it's uh it's perfect for me I have no complaints <laughs> uh
1: yeah, as we were watching the last episode I, I was I was thinking about you and and the stuff that you do just when Arya's is fooling around in like Allison's bedroom, you know pulling medicines and and torture devices out of a little bench chest thing at the foot of the bed and pulling around sconces and lights and stuff.
2: That yeah. Well, stuff. Most of that was all the stuff in the bench is props. Mm-hmm. So when, when it's something that important and that detail oriented, and it's all stuff that the prop department brought in, uh, I, uh, unless they ask for my help, I sort of let them do it. Uh, now if we have to move the bench out, certainly the bench is my responsibility, but, you know, when we're looking inside the bench and dealing with all those uh, things you were talking about and the key and the and the uh, light uh, and the sconce, uh, that's all props. And I let them do it. If they want and ask for my help, I'll certainly give it to them. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. I had a question about the uh, Spencer's barn set. Has that expanded or is it just that they're shooting it differently? Because it seems huge. Like they, we've gotten these angles where you can see like the ceiling and, the, you know, like different rooms and whatnot.
2: Well, we've uh, our uh, director of photography, Larry Reedman, and our camera operator, Craig Fixie, are very aware and very on top of you know trying to give the show you know a good cinematic look. And I think they're they are definitely shooting things wider. Uh, we're seeing ceilings more, so you know a lot of times you're lighting from the ceiling, so we don't have a true ceiling in there. Mm-hmm but we add one depending on the shot. Our grip department will put in a piece of wood or sometimes it's just a cloth that they roll out and stretch tight across there so it looks like a ceiling. But mm. Spencer's barn is you know, still the same size, but mm. uh, if you shoot it with enough wide angles, that definitely gives you the illusion of more space. Mm.
1: So what has been, from your perspective of, of working with the camera, like the most challenging moment on PLL.
2: Well, there's a lot of rugs in, <laughs> in pretty little wires. And then a lot of times, with, uh, I think you probably noticed, we've got a lot of moving camera things. And if we are doing a, a complex moving camera shot, uh, a lot of times the rug will have to go because the camera can't roll on it. It'll bounce around and stuff. You mm-hmm. have to put down special floor for the camera to roll on. So, you know, a big joke on set is, OK, Malone, rug out. And in order to move the rug out, especially in Spencer's barn, you have to move like literally every stick of furniture in there off the rug just to roll up the rug and then get it out. So Mm -hmm. that's always a fun thing for me is the I've made the joke before that, you know, the uh, ratio or the per capita rugs per people in Rosewood must be I think is the highest in the United States (laughs) because I seem to be I seem to be taking out a lot of rugs Aria's uh, den was another one where the rug was really big and there was a lot of stuff on it. So when the rug came out of there, it was like, okay, we got to everybody off the rug. And the rug took up the whole room. So, Mm. you know, it's a a running gag on set is Mike Malone moving rugs.
1: You say that now, but they'll go and write a a chase sequence of A through like a tapestry warehouse or something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just just to challenge you.
2: (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it for a second. It'll... But everything and anything and everything can happen on that show.
0: Do you have one set in particular that's a favorite of yours to shoot on or just favorite in general?
2: I'm a I'm a big fan of Spencer's Great Room. Mm. You know, we call it uh, or I call it Spencer's Merely Adequate Room because <laughs> um, it's a constant. I mean, my first day on uh, Pretty Little Liars was season four, episode one, and we, that was where we were shooting. Yep. It seems to be always like the most popular starting episode set. And it's lasted throughout the three and a half years that I've been on the show now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say Spencer's merely adequate room.
1: <laughs> so does your does your particular job start at any point during pre-production or is it solely in the, the production phase, the shooting crew? No,
2: I, I mean, everybody on the crew gets a script and you know what's coming, but I... I stick strictly with the shooting crew. I don't do any prep or wrap. I mean, at the beginning of the season, they'll give me a day's worth of prep and I come in and just bring my kit full of tools and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm not involved in location scouts or stuff like that. I mean, they give the art department gives me detailed plans of the set that are essentially blueprints. And I use those, you know, to kind of glance over. But, you know, I'm pretty much just with the shooting crew. I'm sort of a department of one many people have called me a department of one
0: (laughs) yeah notice we've had a few shots this season where they're really moving through a like the whole set like in Allie's house or in like spencer's barn we're kind of all in one shot moving through the whole thing does that take extra work to prepare something like that uh just because you have less uh you know less walls you can take out and that sort of thing
2: Exactly. I mean that's that's precisely it. I don't think, you know, it's it's the whole effort to I think give it a more cinematic feel and you know the more you see the less that we can move for lighting or you know it just makes it more challenging mm-hmm. all around because you've got to you know be more creative about where you're going to put lights and uh, where you're going to put, uh, you know, anything really. Uh, we one of the reasons we have uh, Craig Fixie as our camera operator is that he is a Steadicam guy. So by, I think he started uh, as our camera operator, a camera operator on the fifth season, and it was so that we could at any point go to a Steadicam, have a Steadicam standing by, and use it if we needed mm-hmm. it. Because mm-hmm. uh, usually having a steady cam is something you got to plan a few days in advance. But with, uh, with Craig on board, we have one all the time just in case. I mean, cause the director might rehearse a scene and realize, okay, well maybe the best way to do this is with steady cam. So we, we know that we always have one standing by now.
0: Yeah. And that way you guys don't have to lay down like Dolly track or stuff like that. You can just have move right in.
2: Yeah. Steady cam, I'm sure you guys have seen one before. It's a it's a harness that a, a cameraman wears. It has a series of gyroscopes. that smooth, smooths out the steps and makes the shot look smooth. The dolly is you know big we six hundred pound thing where you wheel around and you have to put it on track or you know plywood to give it a nice smooth uh, feel so it doesn't look like oh they hit a they hit a rock or <laughs> yeah. something else you know like mm-hmm. that.
1: I mean didn't didn't Soderberghs film with a lot of steady cam?
2: It's been a while since I've worked with Steven. Uh I think well Traffic was that was the camera on Steven's shoulder for the entire movie because uh he which
1: is his own camera operator.
2: Yes, uh in the time period that I worked with him he went from having a DP to being his own DP and being his own operator. Uh I believe Schizopoulos was the first movie trying to think, I guess it was the first movie I did with them that he operated the entire movie, but that was such a small, you know, project. It was almost like a home movie. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to think after Schizophilus, it was, I didn't do the limey and then it was out of sight. And I don't think he was operating on out of sight, but he was operating on oceans 11 and, and traffic. And he, Mm -hmm tp'd on traffic that was the first time he was director of photography he got he's just got such a grasp on the filmmaking process and what all goes into it that he just feels that if he's doing it himself that you know it just gives him more for lack of a better term control i I wouldn't say control freak but you know just more control Mm -hmm. to better
1: realize that vision yeah yeah, exactly. I, I know Benji and I are both fans of Out of Sight, but from just being a fan and reading, if I understand it correctly, if I remember correctly, like he was in kind of a creative rut after his first couple of movies, you know, after Sex Lies and everything, and right. Scorsese was like the the palate cleanser.
2: Yeah. Um, um, well, okay. I'm going to go into a little bit of a long winded <laughs> story here. I had seen King of the Hill. Uh, I think it was summer of. 93 or late 93 and I thought wow that is one great movie and that was his third film after sex lies and Kafka mm-hmm. and then uh, I was living in LA January 94 the earthquake hits the big one and I'm living near Melrose and Fairfax and that and the 10 freeway had collapsed at uh, Fairfax Avenue and I thought LA is going to be fucking hell <laughs> for the next six months. I got to get out of here. So I'm out with a couple of friends of mine in the business, two girls. And one of them says, oh, I'm getting ready to go to Austin, Texas to work on the new Steven Soderbergh movie. And I thought, hmm, I want in on that. (laughs) So I got in touch with the art department in Texas. Uh, They said, well, we we can't hire you from L.A. You'd have to work as a local, which means if I work as a local in Austin, they don't have to spend money to put me in a hotel because I'm from out of town and all this other Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. So I offered to work as a local. And here's the weird thing is that apparently it came down to me and another guy for the job of onset dresser. This was the underneath Peter Gallagher and uh, Alison Elliott and uh, Bill Fickner. And um, came down to me and another guy and the girl who ran the, uh, who was the art department coordinator on that movie said, Oh, come on. This guy worked on Twin Peaks, <laughs> the original Twin Peaks. And so that's how I got the job. So I go down there, hit Austin, Texas in like February of 94. Friend of a friend of a friend, I was able to rent out a studio apartment for, I want to say two months, three months for like $200.
3: Uh-huh.
2: This, uh, this guy who was like a local you know, rock and roller who knew a friend of a friend and I went down there and uh, stayed in his studio apartment he moved in with his girlfriend for a couple of months and uh, yeah it was great and then while we were doing the underneath in Austin Stephen I think that's when his quote-unquote creative malaise was settling in hes Said he and I became good friends because we have kind of similar sense of humor and I was always around the monitor cracking jokes and stuff and we got along. And he said to me and some of his other regular crew that he'd been working with for years that he wanted to do something on the weekends. This kind of crazy little goofball thing he wanted to do on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Never materialized while we were in Austin. We usually spent our off days and we only had one off day a week. Usually when you're on location, you shoot six day weeks. We would play softball So, as a crew. So about, I don't know, six months or so after The Underneath, I get a script in the mail, and it's Schizophilus. And Stephen's like, you know, here's here's what we're, we're going to do. And it says on IMDb that there was never a, a written script for Schizopolis, but there was. I mean, it was very loosey-goosey, but there was a written script because I remember reading it in my apartment in L.A., And I remember laughing out loud hysterically by the end of the first page. (laughs) So... um, uh, If
1: you don't understand this, that's entirely your fault.
2: No, 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 no. That, That part with Steven up on stage answering questions was only added after uh, he, he took it to Can the Cam Film Festival, mm. and it did not get the best reception. As I, You've both seen it, I assume. It's uh, kind I, of I, a, have,
1: I don't think I've gotten Benji to watch no, it. No, not yet.
2: Okay. It's a sort of obtuse experimental comedy, and if you can't quite get on its wavelength, you're not really going to enjoy it. But the reception at Cannes wasn't that great and Steven sort of went back in and added that bookending part about him up on stage answering questions. <laughs> that wasn't part of the original stuff we shot. Okay.
0: So when you're shooting on location there, how does your job change? I, I imagine they still need you to move stuff around, but it's not typically sets anymore, right?
2: Yeah. It's uh, well, a lot of times on location, you're, First of all, you can't take out walls, obviously. Mm. And uh, there, there are plenty of times on shows where you're on a location and you're shooting in, like, say, somebody's private house. And the art department has gone in ahead of time and taken out all the homeowners furniture and put in their own furniture. That's what the other set dressers would do is that they would go in there, take everything out and put in what they want. And then, again, I show up with the camera crew and I'm just responsible for what we're doing the day We're actually shooting. Mm-hmm. So my, my job really doesn't change other than the fact that, you know, we're somewhere else besides a studio.
0: Can't punch a hole in the wall. Yeah. <laughs>
2: right. Or we might we might build a fake wall. Uh, we did uh, we did that on uh, on the new Twin Peaks where we were in a you know somebody's private house and we had to have some sort of a wall gag mm-hmm. and we would put in a fake a fake wall that we could do anything we want to, but it, it seamlessly matched the rest of the house.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's that famous story about Orson Welles like digging a hole in the ground uh, or the floor of the set when shooting Citizen and Kane. Would that be something a set dresser would? Uh, facilitate there uh, to get a shot?
2: (laughs) It it would depend on how big a job digging a hole was. We have a very hardworking and enthusiastic grip department. And a lot of times, you know, for a big project like that, if there's like, they're they're in charge of moving walls. Mm -hmm. And if it's a big project where they want to put the camera someplace unusual and it involves a lot of that kind of stuff, the grips will usually take the lead on that. Cool. Uh, so I have just one last Schizopolis question,
1: which is, what is it like going from being crew to actually being part of the cast?
2: Well, the the thing is, the crew was only five people. Now, I know you guys have been to the Pretty Little liar set. You know, we have a makeup trailer, or a wardrobe trailer, you know, trailers for the actors, trailers for production. And we have, you know, offices and space and all this personnel. Mm-hmm. On Schizopolis, it was... Steven Soderbergh, Paul Ledford, his usual sound mixer, David Jensen, a longtime friend of Steven's who was Elmo Oxygen in the movie. He's an actor. He's a grip. He's an electrician. He, he's one of these jack-of-all-trades guys mm-hmm. who's an old friend of Steven's from Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. We had John Hardy, Steven's uh, producer at the time. Who had produced, discovered him, and basically produced *Sex Lies* and all of his movies up until uh, the last *Oceans* movie, and me, and it was the five of us, and we shot it all with this old—I uh, believe it was a Mitchell camera that Stephen had bought, and we had a what's called a Lowell light kit, which is basically stuff you'd use at film school mm-hmm. in the late '70s or early '80s, just these really basic small lights and a few fluorescent lights. And my rent a car on Schizopolis was actually the grip jug, but everybody did their own wardrobe. Steven kept track of his wardrobe per whatever scene it was in. Uh, we didn't have a wardrobe trailer. We didn't have wardrobe people. We didn't have makeup. We didn't have hair. It was just the five of us kind of making this little experimental comedy. And it was it's still funnest filmmaking experience I've ever had. Okay. Just uh every day we'd get up and just say, Okay, let's go shoot this today. Okay, well, who can play this part? It goes, Well, okay, I know somebody, okay. And then we'll call call somebody and then we'd go over and spend the day shooting it. We ate lunch at one of three different places, Burger King, this (laughs) other diner in Baton Rouge, famous diner in Baton Rouge, or uh this something street market that had sandwiches and we would eat kind of like the same thing every day. And then, you know, we'd be, we'd be home and then we'd, you know, goof around and then we'd get up the next morning and go do it again. And we'd chat for, I don't know, probably about two or three months in, uh, in Baton Rouge just uh, doing all this silly stuff. And the thing is without that huge number of people, you know, it just gives you so much more freedom to do stuff.
1: mm mm-hmm. So you've mentioned old Twin Peaks, new Twin Peaks. What's it like working on the original show and coming back to this uh, return?
2: Well, the original show was a kick in the pants. It was one of my first jobs. I sort of fell into it. Uh, They shot the pilot up in Washington, I think the entire pilot up in Washington. And then when they announced it was going to series, they said it was going to shoot down here. And Patty Norris, the Extremely, the late Patty Norris, the extremely talented uh, production designer who would do wardrobe and production design, art department for most of David's movies, said, "You know, you can't, you can't shoot this show in L.A." Mm-hmm. And so she didn't do the L.A. portion of the show. As I said, the pilot was in in uh, Washington. The bulk of the show, the 29 episodes were all in uh, LA and I got the job as the onset dresser in LA with a completely different art department. Some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't know and was able to be on the show for, you know, both those seasons. And it was great. You know, all these super talented, uh, actors. We have just this really interesting bunch of directors. Diane Keaton directed an episode, uh, Caleb Deschanel, the direct famous director of photography directed a few episodes. Uh, David, you know, of course directed a few episodes, Mark Frost, uh, mm. and, uh, Todd Holland, uh, who I've worked with a lot recently in the past few years. Uh, that's where he got his start was, uh, directing one of those episodes, but it was just, uh, Kind of just uh, goofy and crazy and sort of fun. And then, uh, let's see, I, I'm guessing about the mid-2000s, I get a phone call one day from this guy. He says, are you Mike Malone? I said, yeah. He says, uh, listen, we're doing some behind-the-scenes, Twin Peaks, uh, Fire Walk With Me uh, interviews. And the the writer, Bob Engels, who was a co-writer on Fire Walk With Me, said I should call you. He said you'd have some good stories. I'm like, okay, whatever. So me and the uh, sound mixer on Fire Walk With Me, John Huck, he and I were kind of the class clowns on Fire Walk With Me. So we decided we're going to do it together because we have a good rapport and we can come up with some funny banter And so this guy shot us and interviewed us for some behind-the-scenes stuff. And he said it was for a French DVD release that they were going to do. And I thought, okay, whatever. Send me a copy. Yeah, great. So never hear anything about it again. Then all of a sudden, two summers ago, yeah, summer of 14, I get a call and there's a screening that's going to be held. That is all the Twin Peaks came together and they're re-releasing... Or, or, no, they're showing on a theater screen in Hollywood all the deleted scenes from Fire Walk With Me. And I'm thinking, that's that's a little strange. And it's in concert with this uh, release of the Blu-ray of all the uh, the show and Fire Walk With Me. Mm-hmm. And then the reason I got invited was apparently they used some of that old behind-the-scenes footage. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I go, hadn't seen David since... The old Twin Peaks or actually a few commercials after that and got back. You know, it was nice to see him again and reconnect with a lot of the old crew because some of them were there. Some of them weren't. Then, you know, two or three months after that, they announced Twin Peaks is coming back. And I'm like, wow, really? Wow. Okay." (laughs) Then two or three months after that, I'm in touch with some of the higher ups and they're saying, yeah, we'd like to, you know, have you back. And I'm like, really? Okay. But I've got the best job in Hollywood, which is pretty low wires. (laughs) So I was able to make it work uh, from a schedule standpoint to where I was able to do both. And that was mostly to the graciousness and generosity of people on Pretty Little Liars because I had to miss a chunk of season six on Pretty Little Liars to go do the new Twin Peaks. And then I came back to Pretty Little Liars for season seven, which Mm. we're halfway through with now. Because this is the end of your your hiatus week, right? Yeah, that's correct. We start back to work bright and early tomorrow at seven. (laughs) So
1: um, it's, it's, I mean, uh, Twin Peaks I've always liked. So I it's funny because we, we'll constantly get emails that are like, oh, you guys like PLL. Obviously, you do a podcast about it. But have you heard about the show Twin Peaks, which is so similar? And it's like, ha, 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 yes. But uh, I was especially excited to talk to you about it just because like Frank Silva, who eventually became Bob on Twin Peaks. You know, it was it started as an accident, though, didn't it?
2: Yeah, he was the on-set dresser on the pilot. And, you know, great guy. He's uh passed away now. And uh, he, I mean, the story I've heard is, you know, he was ducking behind the bed and David basically, you know, told him to stay there. And uh, David's, you know, you can have a script, but with David, it may not matter. He may see something that might happen on the set one day and it might, you know, cause a chain reaction that brings up something entirely new in the script. And so I think uh, that's basically what happened. So when I first met Frank, he was Killer Bob, mm-hmm. you know, and he passed away a few years after uh, Twin Peaks. I actually, I had made this uh, short film with a friend of mine called Hollywood Dicks and got Frank to be in it because he was, I mean, at one point he was getting hired just to go to parties in, <laughs> in his wardrobe as Killer Bob just to show up and be, you know, like a guy at a party. I, I remember him telling that story.
0: Yeah, get, get in on that.
2: Well, I remember when I first started, when I first got on Pretty Little Liars, I really didn't have any idea what the, you know, the impact was of it culturally. And I, you know, I'm standing in line at the grocery store, like a couple of weeks before my first day, and I see the girls on – the cover of Entertainment Weekly, and I watch a few episodes and I'm thinking to myself, this is, and I never watched Gossip Girl, but I knew what the concept of it was. And I always thought it was Twin Peaks meets Gossip Girl <laughs> mm-hmm. because he had that whole, you know, high school girl dying mystery, you know, and I don't know how old you guys are, but on the original Twin Peaks, a lot of the, the cultural impact was about the wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the girls were dressed and everything else just caused this whole stir and i remember being on you know the first couple of seasons of pretty little liars for me four and five it was you know all about what the girls were wearing Mm -hmm. and i thought in in that way it was very similar to uh twin peaks and the whole mood and the outside at night you know there's there's a lot of similarities a lot of differences but a lot of similarities Mm too
1: yeah on, on on occasion we talk about the fashion of PLL on our <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you could say that same thing. PLL, just take out your your FBI agent, take out your sheriff, you know, and, and put put the girls in charge of the mystery. It's it's very similar in that regard, for sure. Um, oh, no, so I want to say real quick, I was doing some research and I found an article where they actually talked about with, uh, you know, Bob's unfortunate passing, that the show's going to need a new Bob, you know, just speculating. And I remember your name was one of the... Uh, the suggestions. Oh, whatever, uh, whatever website had 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 come up with these people who a lot of these people who looked a little bit like Frank Silva, and then you were one of the suggestions.
2: Um. Well, I I appreciate that. If you, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but you know the the crew and the cast have been announced mm-hmm. for the new Twin Peaks. Yeah. And if you notice on the cast list, I am on the cast list.
1: Oh. Okay.
2: But that's all, that's all I'm going to say at this point.
1: But you have previously played an FBI agent in Twin Peaks, though, right? Yeah,
2: that was, uh, I, get, I can tell that story. We were It was the opening scene where we meet Chet Desmond, uh, Chris Isaac, who's great. Love Chris Isaac. He's such a great guy. Amazingly fun to work with. And it was the whole scene where he's, it looks like there's a prostitution ring being carried out on a school bus. Uh, I think that's how it worked. And it was just Chris Isaac alone with these guys, a couple of hookers and all these kids on the bus screaming. And I whispered in uh, our script supervisor's ear, Corey Glazer, who's very, very close to David. Uh, She's done almost all of his stuff, and she's just a a godsend. I said, you know, it looks like uh, Chris Isaac's going to need some help. And she smiled at me, and she whispered over to David. And uh, David always carries around a megaphone. He goes, Malone, Huck, you're in the FBI. (laughs) And John Huck was the uh, sound mixer. So we quickly go to wardrobe, put on a couple of dark suits. I think I was wearing actually one of uh, Kyle McLaughlin's old suits. That was back when I was skinny enough to fit in one of Kyle (laughs) McLaughlin's old suits. And he put us out there and, uh, you know, just holding guns on it to give it little more of a dynamic feel, I guess. If you'll notice, though, I've got a cast on my left hand in that scene. Five days before shooting started on Fire Walk With Me, I was playing basketball with uh, a bunch of guys, including Dana Ashbrook, one of the, you know, Bobby Briggs on Twin Peaks. Mm. And we were all going for a loose ball. And I had my hand outstretched and rammed it into his Mm. breastbone accidentally and broke a bone in the back of my hand. And when Patty Norris, the production designer saw that, you know, I'm literally like three days from getting on a plane to go up to Washington to work on fire. Welcome me. and, I thought she, I thought I was fired for sure. I thought it was like, well, you can't do your job, you know, but cooler heads prevailed. I think David stepped in and came to my rescue a little bit. And uh, I was able to do the show with uh, with a cast in my hand for the first uh, month.
1: Hmm. So just, just for anyone who's listening, who's not aware, you've joined the ranks of other Twin Peaks FBI agents as Tom McLaughlin, David Lynch himself, David Bowie, and Chris Isaac.
2: Oh, and David. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, they're all just uh, great guys. I, I my David Bowie story from Firewalk With Me is that uh, I I can always say I made David Bowie laugh because he, he didn't work that many days on it. He worked two or three days on it on the Firewalk With Me. And he wanted to hang around set because he just thought David was the coolest guy. And he is. And it, so he was always, you know, when you when you're done with your stuff, most actors will go back to their trailer or get away from the set because, you know, they don't want to be bothered. But Bowie hung around. And so we're shooting this scene in, I think, one of the FBI offices, and the entire crew is, like, crowded into this corner because that's the only place where you can be that's not on camera. And uh, Deepak Nayar, who's gone on to bigger and better things, including the, what was the Tiger in the Boat movie, like pie. uh, five of pie. Right. Yeah. He was the first assistant director. And usually when somebody was talking on twin peaks, fire Walk with me, it was me. Uh, so I was constantly being told to shut up. So I was talking during something and Bowie happened to be sitting right next to me. And, uh, Deepak heard me talking he goes, Mike Malone, be quiet. And I said, it wasn't me. It was <laughs> Bowie. And, uh, Bowie, you know, looked at me and, and laughed. And I, you know, when Ed Bowie passed away earlier or late last year, earlier this year, I can't remember, uh, you know, everybody had a Bowie story and I, you know, I always know that I made David Bowie laugh. Nice. <laughs> I'll
0: say, yeah, it looks like you've had some, some cameos and some little walk-ons in a, a fair number of projects you've worked on. As far as we can tell, you've never had one on PLL. Is that right?
2: That is correct. Uh, haven't, well, usually I'll uh, most of the stuff I did was Soderbergh, with the exception of uh, Schizopolis. I would, like, an out of sight. I read through the script and I figured out, oh, this is a part he'll give me if I ask it. <laughs> I, so we hadn't shot that scene yet, and uh, we shot that in Miami, and I think we were still in L.A., but it was I don't know a week or before that and I cornered him at the craft service and I said so Stephen you're going to let me play the guy in the bank that robs the uh, bank with Clooney right and he goes thinks about it for a second and he goes yeah yeah, I guess you could do that (laughs) yeah And the same thing in um, I think in traffic, too, where I'm the waiter that gets beat up. I think I had to ask for that part, too. I would go through the script and find out, oh, that'll be a fun little one line thing. And the same with um, I'm in Ocean's Eleven for, you know, a split second. I'm the guy that Matt Damon is pickpocketing on the train when Clooney goes to recruit him. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually had a line with that, and I still get residual checks. But <laughs> if you go back and watch a movie, it was music over it now. But, you know, I don't care as long as the residual checks keep coming. And, and the new Twin Peaks, uh, when I read the script, I saw, you know, what was going to be the perfect uh, Mike Malone cameo and uh, openly campaigned for it.
0: Excellent. Okay. Also, if you, if you could, uh, you know, get your way onto PL PLL says or any particular role you think would be fun, like a type of background character or something like that.
2: Well, uh, Troyan from time to time refers to me as uh, the drunk uncle. So <laughs> maybe, you know, if there's a drunk uncle uh, uh, part in there somewhere, maybe I could do that. But I, I don't know. I mean, I read the PLL scripts and it all depends on the director, too. You got to. You know, I have my best relationships with uh, like Norman Buckley, Chad Lowe, those mm. guys. I mean, I I I don't know that I feel that comfortable with them to go up and say, "Hey, can I have this walk-on and, part?" And to be honest, there's not. I mean, I'm just turned fifty-four, and you know, there's not that many fifty-four-year-old guys on uh, Pretty Little Liars. Mm. I mean, if it happens, it happens. You know, maybe before the end of the year, I don't know. We'll see.
1: <laughs> and well, so can just a little bit because I cannot not ask you this what is george clooney like
2: great he done three movies of him i did uh out of sight oceans and solaris and he's just prince of a guy super smart super funny we actually sort of have this playfully adversarial relationship about who's funnier or who's who's really the class clown mm-hmm. but since i was on set i i sort of feel like i won that but he, he might <laughs> tell you something different but um yeah, I always got along with him very well. I've uh, run into him a couple times since then. He's always very gracious. He's a he's a terrific, terrific guy. Just fun loving. Oh, the good the good story from out of sight was the day we shot my scene where you know he's robbing the bank and I'm sitting in the background. The day before that, People Magazine had come out with you know the sexiest men alive, and he had won sexiest man alive. And Stacey share our producer had uh, T-shirts printed up with George Clooney on the cover of people on one side of the shirt and a really awkward, embarrassing uh, shot of George from his childhood on the (laughs) back of the shirt. And so she's, I was given the task of keeping George offset so that they could distribute the T-shirts to everybody on the crew. And so when he walked into the bank for the first time in Miami, everybody's got the shirts on and, you know, play the joke on him. So I've got, I, again, he and I have this playfully adversarial relationship, and I've got no idea how to keep him out of the thing. So I go up to him at the craft service table, and everybody else is in the bank. And I'm like, so, uh, George, you got any, uh, I don't know, you got any acting tips for me? Because, you know, I actually had lines and had to do stuff. And he kind of looks at me like, what the, <laughs> are you kidding? Really? and so i had to kind of keep a conversation going with him but fortunately i didn't have to do it for too long and uh you know we got him the 80s came out get brought him into the bank and then he sort of looked at me and knew that oh so you're the one who's supposed to keep Mm -hmm. me outside yeah he sort of knew that that was what i was doing
1: i was gonna say as i know he's a a classic prankster on the set i was wondering if you had a great george Clooney prank story but you do
2: (laughs) uh yeah i'm I'm trying to think if he I mean, he's always—I can't remember anything specific, mm-hmm. but yeah, I—I I, I do remember. You know, he's constantly goofing around and joking with people. And uh, another good one was uh, the last day of shooting on Solaris, which we, 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 it, I think we're we're like ending the show, uh, we're ending on a Thursday, and Friday night is going to be the wrap party. And this was back when you know you still shot film and. David Jensen, uh, who's Soderbergh's old friend, who if you look at his IMDb page, he's been in everything that Steven's done, too. He was working on the show as a grip. I was working as the onset. And we thought D- David had a proclivity for wanting to take off all his clothes and just run around <laughs> naked. So we thought what would be funny is uh, on the last day of shooting, Stephen had wanted some shots of just Clooney wandering around suspiciously around the spaceship, you know, like I heard something or, you know, just walking around looking like what's going on, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we get those shots and then a door opens up and Jensen and I come out naked with just space helmets on (laughs) right in front of us. And then we run down the hall away from him. And George is like left there, going, you know, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know. And the other thing was, I thought this is the last day of shooting, and the wrap party's tomorrow night. And Stephen usually shows a blooper reel at uh, the wrap party, and I thought there's no way the naked footage of Malone and Jensen is going to make it into the blooper reel. Yeah. No time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure enough, Stephen finds a way. We're at the. Uh, famous i mean there's been to countless rap parties there uh jerry's daily on uh ventura boulevard in studio city there's a bowling alley there and it's mm. a great place for a rap party sure enough places packed big names stars the whole thing boom right there the blooper reel and there's the footage of me and jensen naked running down the, running down the halls of the spaceship uh t- can't put anything past <laughs> steven soderbergh he's uh it's too smart.
0: Yeah, I kind of wish we had more blooper reels from the PLL set, it seems like. I've seen a few of them from earlier seasons, but it doesn't seem like too many of them get out there, but they're usually pretty funny.
2: Yeah, I mean, the girls are all very funny and great. I mean, I, when I first started working on the show, remember I told you I was saw them on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my god, four <laughs> girls in their 20s are all big stars? Because I've been on shows where, you know, if you've got somebody who's a little too full of themselves or negative. uh, You know, the the star of a show can make or break the work experience. But those four girls, Ashley, Lucy, Shay, and Troyan, are great. They are not prima donnas at all. I'm not saying this just because somebody told me to. They are (laughs) terrific. They are fun. They're not divas at all. They're just cool, (laughs) cool girls and very laid back. And it makes... It's what it really is what makes one of the things about PLL so great to work on is that they're not total pains in the ass. They're great. And, you know, they're on their phones, you know, 90% of the time. And it's like, okay, action. And I put the phone down, say the lines, and then back to the phone so it's, as soon as you all cut. It's great.
0: Yeah, I know. When, when we were at the set watching the scene, we were. Really impressed by how quickly they could like go into and add a character. They're just like snap right in, snap right out.
2: Oh yeah. They're, they're pros. They, they know the score. They're, they know what they're doing. They're great. Well, I always felt like
1: they have a great excuse. Should someone ever have a problem? It's that, you know, I'm, I'm getting in character by checking my phone.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's most of the time, you know, except for extremely difficult scenes, they're. They can snap in and out pretty easily. And, you know, I mean, they're, you know, they're girls in their 20s playing girls in their 20s. You know, they're not doing, you know, Hamlet or Shakespeare or anything like that. This is, uh, you know, and plus they've been doing it for so long. You know, it's it's like reflex to them. Mm
1: -hmm. So do you have a favorite episode or moment from PLO, either either in the Uh, show itself or from, you know, working on it?
2: Well, my favorite episode is by far the black and white episode. I just thought that was uh, absolutely masterfully done. Larry Rebin our DP, just everybody, production design, the whole, the script. Joe Doherty, I think, wrote the script. Uh, just masterful. I just was so giddy and uh, proud to say I have worked on that. I was just blown away by how terrific it was. And I keep, I keep uh, campaigning with. Troy and to have Troy and have another drug induced, uh, mm. dream sequence, but we have a disco episode, you know, like a Saturday <laughs> night fever, you know, disco episode, but I don't know if it's going to happen. We've only got 10 episodes left, so we'll see.
1: Oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs>
2: oh yeah. I mean, that was another one of my high points of the show was at the season four rap party. Uh, I was, uh, drinking a bit and, uh, I had been pestering the DJ at the party to, play a lot of disco music because i'm a disco fan so i have been pestering and so he finally started playing some disco music and I'm, and troyan was uh nice enough to dance with the drunk mike <laughs> malone at the uh season four rap party to a bunch of disco music so that was one of, one of my high points
1: okay. so uh what other shows are you watching now as a as a fan or just shows that you admire their their look and you know production set wise
2: Yesterday, I started re-watching Mr. Robot season one. I just think that show is unbelievably amazing. I'm so impressed with it on every level. Mm. Uh, I did a show with Christian Slater a few years ago. That guy is a freaking prince. He is so professional, so fun, so good at what he does and just he is absolutely one of the top three or four guys i've ever worked with in this business he's tremendous and i love that show i think halt and catch fire is a great show i don't know why more people aren't watching that uh archer i love archer (laughs) just blows me away modern family still continues to impress me i don't see how they keep the quality up on that show because it could easily drop off but they continue to keep it at a high level I'm so impressed with it I like blackish Sherlock even though it's not on the air that much anymore I wish it was on more but yeah loved it when it was on I think it's there's another season coming out right
0: I think so yeah yeah
2: yeah That's I some... love Sherlock but yeah. yeah well yesterday I watched like they did a marathon of this first season of mr robot because the next season starts wednesday and i wanted to make sure i went back and watched it again and i'm just so impressed uh, even watching it again after last year i'm just like wow that show is so good on so many levels
1: it's it's funny because literally right before you know we started talking to you like you know an hour ago uh we were talking about the last scene of mr robot and our admiration for bd wong and just excited for that show to return
2: yeah, it's uh it's uh, great. I think I got through six episodes up until late last night and I'm gonna watch the last four today. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh truly, truly an impressive show.
0: We we ask this question of everyone we get on the show. I always wanna say, uh, if you could do any sort of like spin off of PLL, any anything you'd wanna see or and what would you want that to be?
2: I think uh Spencer doing a Mary Tyler Moore type show in Washington <laughs> D C you know just like a, a total multi-camera sitcom oh yeah you know just where she you know is a single career gal you know making her way in washington mm-hmm. dc
1: Incomplete with drug-induced uh <laughs> dreams yeah, <laughs> you know
2: the, the highs and lows of spencer hastings you know
1: disco flashbacks yeah
2: yeah exactly <laughs> why not
1: so, what would your dream project
2: be to work on? Oh, that's another. We got that's another whole hour. I <laughs> I wrote this script years ago. That geez, Louise, it's just uh, it was so close to getting made so many times. I had uh, I had Nick Offerman interested in playing the lead. I had Neil Patrick Harris interested in playing the lead. I had Soderbergh on board as a possible exec producer, presenter type. You know, it's just. Actually, what's weird is that it's sort of resurfaced and my producer on it has gotten back in touch with me and he says he may have an avenue for it. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, I could almost start a blog about how not to make a movie (laughs) because we had just so much bad luck happen (laughs) trying to get it off the ground. But, you know, it's still a script I wrote and believe in and think would be a great script it's just somebody else's with some money has got to believe it too mm-hmm. you know that's that's the, the the key to any filmmaking is you know you can get 80 people telling you how great the script is but if nobody's willing to write a check you're sitting at home
0: <laughs> yeah i was listening to uh, the scripts notes podcast recently and i thought they had an interesting point about how you have to differentiate between the people who really like what you're doing and the people who actually want to like you know cut a check because uh, they're yeah, not all the same people.
2: It's crazy. I mean, we, uh, you know, I've sat there in meetings with uh, with Soderbergh and Money people who, mm-hmm. you know, seemed like they were, we we thought it was going to be a go. And then, you know, just shit happens and, uh, you know, it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it may be rearing its head again. And, you know, having gone to film school, I've always, you know, try to keep something written that's, you uh, you know, you can show around because you you just never know. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you got to have a script in
2: Hollywood, right? Yeah, exactly. Everybody's got one.
0: Believe us, know.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, uh, I I thought for sure you were going to say that you were going to try to get on the uh, this potential Buckaroo Bonsai show.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of Buckaroo Bonsai, and I. Thought. I mean, even when we were doing Ocean's Eleven, Soderbergh brought up a good point. He said, "You know, if you're going to remake something, remake something that was bad. The original Ocean's Eleven is damn near unwatchable. Yes, true. Mm -hmm. It is horrible. And Steven, I mean, that's one of my favorite of Steven's movies. I mean, even though it's a, you know, it's basically a confection. It is slick. It moves. The music's great. The looks great." Everything about that movie to me, I think, is top notch. And Mm -hmm. I'm not just saying that because I worked on it. I've worked on plenty of stuff, but I'm not going to, just because I work on it doesn't mean it's good. Mm -hmm. But Buckaroo Banzai to me was always something that I liked and loved. But you go back and watch it, and there are things that you, you, you sit there and you say, oh, that would be better if you just had a little more money, a little more slickness, a little more, you know whatever. And I thought, I don't understand with all the rebooting that's going on, why doesn't a studio jump on that? Because to me, if you redid Buckaroo I right, got the right stars and money and everything, it would be a sci-fi Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. And then I I read, I don't know, a month or two ago about how Kevin Smith had directed this episode of The Flash Mm -hmm. that everybody loved. And apparently MGM who have been holding on to the rights for Buckaroo Banzai for years, approached him about a reboot. And he said, well, yeah, I'd love to do it. But, you know, let's do it as like a 10 episode where you do the redo. The first movie as a 10 episode. And then you do the announced but never made sequel as the second season.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The world 10 episodes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not that big a Kevin Smith fan. I love Clerks and I love Chasing Amy, but I think everything else he's done is crap. And him personally, he's always struck me as kind of a boob, but I don't know. I mean, maybe he's not, but he's enough of a he's enough of a fanboy that if he got a hold of Buckaroo Banzai, I think he would treat it with the proper amount of reverence Mm. to, you know, do it and do it well and, you know, reboot it in a proper fashion. I mean, even Soderbergh years ago on set was saying, oh, yeah, I'd I'd love to do him. Rubens! I see. But I mean, he would never, you know, go to MGM right. and say, do it. But I think, you know, if they came to him, I think he'd do it.
1: It always seemed like a much more accessible Doc Savage to me, like a much yeah. more interesting Absolutely. To a audience. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like I said, sci-fi Ocean's 11. You get a bunch of big stars, ensemble cast, rock and rollers. You got comedy, you've got sci-fi, you've got, I mean, it had a great tone to it. It's, it's just a, Great, great movie. And I was, I mean, I, I hate most of the reboots that are done, but I think that would be just a prime candidate for something.
0: Yeah, that's why I've also thought they should redo uh, Soylent Green, because that movie is pretty terrible. But the concept is uh, kind of a classic. I also thought that would yeah. be a good choice to remake.
2: Yeah, you'd have to really ramp up the action. I mm-hmm. mean, I heard a couple of years ago, wasn't it announced that Nicholas uh, Wending Rifen was going to do Logan's Logan's run Run with uh, Ryan Gosling and, you know, ramp up the violence a little bit (laughs) because, you know, that was one of the great things that I thought about drive is you've got, you know, these long, slow languid scenes. And then all of a sudden there's like this out of nowhere, over the top violence, Mm -hmm. you know, and to me it really worked. And I thought if you really slicked up Logan's run, you could really have fun with that too. Because well, The old is, uh, is so silly and goofball and
1: Yeah, exactly. Bad. I mean,
2: it's watchable and it's great because, you know, that's from my era. But it's still it, – it, uh, that would be one movie that would be in dire need of redoing.
1: <laughs> who's today's Michael York, Ryan Gosling?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe without the accent. Well, that's what I was thinking. Who is today's Buckaroo Banzai? You know, I was thinking somebody like Wahlberg might be yeah. able to handle it. You know, somebody who's cool – Who could? But but if you go back and look at the cast of of Buckaroo Banzai, it's all actors. There's no comics, right? With Mm -hmm. the possible exception of Goldblum, but Goldblum's really just a funny actor. He's a good actor, Mm -hmm. but he's not really a comic. But Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was thinking like you get uh, Will Forte as uh, Emilio Lazardo. right? And then you know, but could he handle it? Because you know, Forte has got that commitment to weirdness. That he can always pull off. And that's what Emilio, uh, you know, John Wharf and Emilio Lozardo was to me. It was just, you know, even Lithgow has said it's, you know, easily the most over the top performance oh, yeah. of his career. And he, you know, committing to that was a little difficult for him.
1: Well, let me throw this idea at you. What if it was Keegan Allen as Buckaroo Banzai?
2: <laughs> I love Keegan. He's great. I don't know that he's old enough yet. I don't know that he's got that, you know... He could probably pull it off. I mean, I think if you look back, I think Weller was in his mid-30s when he did Bunkaroo Banzai. Hmm. And I think in order to have a believable neurosurgeon, crime fighter, scientist, rock and roll star, you've got to have... I think you need somebody who has that, you know, maturity that where you look past the age of 30. Keegan Allen Hmm. looks like, you know, he just... You know, he's a sophomore in high school. He's <laughs> he's great. Don't get me wrong. I love him. But, uh, you know, he's still got that overwhelming youthful quality. You know, Franco, James Franco might be a great Buckaroo Bontai because, you know, you look at his career and what he's doing and he's doing just so much weird stuff these days. He might really sink a seat through it and relish it.
1: And yet I could see him also playing the John Lithgow role.
2: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a. I didn't think of that. It's a great choice. And I was thinking Bill Hader in the Jeff Goldblum role,
3: mm-hmm. the
2: New Jersey. So I mean, you could go. We could do this all day,
3: <laughs> yeah. you know. Yes.
2: But uh, yeah, I I'd be interested to see. Apparently, on Wikipedia, it says that MGM and and Kevin Smith are looking for a network to do the show. So hopefully, it's just a matter of time. So I
1: I could see it on Freeform. <laughs>
2: uh boy i don't know that'd be interesting that'd be uh, that'd be an interesting move i don't even know what else is on is stitcher did stitchers get a third season
0: uh i I, I could so. not say
2: <laughs> i think so
0: yeah you worked on that a little right
2: yeah oh uh, the main reason i worked on it is because uh fred andrews who was the production designer on Brave little liars when well, we went from season five to six we were going to do less episodes so it's five less episodes so in my mind as a crew person that means oh that's less work for me i've got to go out and you know make yeah. up for that work. so he brought me on and i did five episodes of it because i thought okay well financially for my family it will be that'll make up for the five episodes i'm missing on Pretty Little liars mm-hmm. and there's some uh it's it, it was a weird show made some good friends on it though but uh really like uh, Allison Scagliotti because when my my son's 17 and when he was little, we watched every episode of Drake and Josh, of course. Mm -hmm. And she was uh, on that show. And I remember when she came on set the first time, I'm like, I know you. And I looked her up and it's like, oh, I know you because I watched every episode of your show six times when my son was (laughs) six or seven years old. And she's a big uh, Twin Peaks fan. I've uh, gotten together with her outside of work a few times she's fun she's in a band here in la she's uh she's a lot of fun all
0: right well i think that about does it for our questions unless you had any more Marga. no no i
1: just wanted to thank you so much for for talking to us i said so, uh being a twin peaks fan and, and especially a soderbergh fan like uh this was great insight into both those so i really appreciate it
2: no, my, uh, my pleasure. Always happy to talk about either one of, uh, those, uh, projects. And, uh, yeah, Soderbergh's one of the all-time greats, just super, super smart guy, super funny. That, that, most of the, I mean, Lynch, Soderbergh, Clooney, all those guys are all just really, really smart, really, really funny. And uh, that's one reason why I've been able to enjoy, uh, you know, relationships with them is that you know i think i can sort of keep up with them from a, on a sense of humor level <laughs> so that's always nice and plus being the on-set dresser that's one of the advantages is i'm exposed to the actors and the directors so i'm it's it's hard not to fashion some sort of relationship with them
0: that's how you become the uh drunk uncle exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I really want to thank you for joining us. That Was a lot of fun. Uh, have fun and good luck on the PL set tomorrow. I know you guys are just coming back from hiatus. You're counting down
2: those last ten. Oh yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. I'm not sure where we start tomorrow. I know it's on stage seven, which means probably Spencer's barns on grade seven, stage seven, and uh, Lucas's loft is on stage. No, oh, interesting. That's always, yeah, it's always a fun set. <laughs>
0: Are there any sets that you miss? Like I know they had to f- tear down a few. Any any sets that you miss that you wish they were still there?
2: I sort of miss Hannah's kitchen. I don't miss Lucy's bedroom or Arya's bedroom because that was just always tough from my standpoint. Being mm. purely selfish. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, th- I think Norman Buckley mentioned that was a hard yeah, set. Yeah, it shoot was on.
2: just you know it was the only one that actually had a real working ceiling on it, a hard wood actual ceiling on it. Mm -hmm. and it was just you know this long skinny room where it's it was difficult to uh stage a scene in there Mm -hmm. and it was just you know heavy stuff and not that many ways in and out and 99 times out of 100 you'd put you'd have to put the camera in the doorway and you know everything in there was heavy you know so i'm always (laughs) associating it with uh, having to you know move stuff around so
1: we're just going to assume that Pictunia is trapped in that bedroom for all time.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll have to ask uh, the prop guys tomorrow what happened to her because I she hasn't been around this season yet, has she?
0: I don't think so. Uh, not yet. Yeah, I, I haven't now. seen
2: her seen her out and about. So, you know, we'll see. I'll I'll figure it out. There we go. <laughs> all,
0: right, awesome. all right. Well, Thank you again.
2: Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ben.
0: Mm-hmm. Bye bye.